text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years? I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we uh, look at this scripture this morning, God, I pray that you give our hearts and minds the strength and capacity to comprehend this great love that you've had for us in Christ, to think about what it means to be sons of God. God, the fact that uh, this that we often come to your word dull, find ourselves bored by it so often, is testimony to our sinfulness. For your glory never fails. So God, I pray you would help us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing on through our journey through uh, the, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, I said last time that it seems like we get the same sermon every week because in this whole letter, Paul is finding every way he can to illustrate the fundamental reality of the gospel to us. Namely, that a man is saved not by works, but by grace. And so it's going to be no different this morning. Now, when you think of Christianity in light of all the religions out there in the world, it is, in a sense, the opposite of every other religion. Every religion can pretty much be put in one category that has this similar attribute, and that's this. When you put man on his own, apart from God's revelation in the Bible, the religion he will create 
will be a religion of works where a man has to do this or that in order uh, that God might look at his works and say, that's good enough. Now you can come into heaven. That's the opposite of Christianity, but it's the most natural thing for man to do apart from God's revelation. It doesn't matter. You take any religion out there. They might have different rules and a different list, but it's the same system where man seeks to help himself in order to make himself pleasing to God. And if that's true, then it's the temptation of even the Christian when we're not walking according to the truth to live our lives in the same way. There's some of you here today who would find your confidence when you die one day in the fact that you are a better person than someone else out there. I just know it's true. There's no way in a group this large, everyone is trusting in Christ and in His grace. And even those of us who are, we tend to trust in ourselves. If I were to go knock on every door in Aberdeen and ask those who believe there is a God and there is a heaven, if they believe they're going, how many are going to say, you know, I don't think I'm going to make it? Almost everyone thinks they're going to make it, and if I asked them why, the most natural thing that's going to come out of their mouth is things they have done for God, maybe going to church, maybe a baptism, maybe a communion. They're going to point to something that they did that God looked at and said, that's good enough, or that's better than the others. In fact, even if I go up to a born-again Christian and I were just going to put them on the spot and say, if you're going to die today, why would God uh, let you into heaven? What would you say to him? The response I'll hear most naturally that just almost flows off their tongue a lot of times is, things they've done. And then as I question, oh, so what you're going to do is you're going to point out the fact that you've done this and you did this and you did that and you go and you're going to put that before God. And then at that point, usually they come to their senses and say, well, no, it's because of what Jesus did for me. You see, it's that natural for man to want to earn His way to heaven. And Paul is arguing with everything he has to this young church in Galatia to hang on to the grace of God and to not give in to these false teachers that are saying, trusting in Christ isn't good enough. You have to add the law, circumcision, things like this to it in order for God to accept you. Uh, Let me just uh, remind you of a few of these texts. Uh, Paul doesn't mince any words. In Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now listen, God's perfect word said no one will get into heaven on the basis of their rule keeping or law keeping, whether it's the Jewish law, whether it's the American law of morality, whether it's a sect of Christianity that's a cult that adds Jesus but then wants to add works. Remember, Jesus plus anything else gets you nothing. There's one way to be saved. A sinner that comes to the point and says, I am not good enough. Christ was the only one that was good enough. And the only way I'll be saved is if His life can be given for my life and my sin can be given to Him. Unless there's a transaction, a swapping of His perfect life for my life, there is no salvation. Paul has clearly taught if you add anything to the gospel and hope in that, you lose Christ. In Galatians 3.10, he said this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Here's what he says. If you want to pick one rule of the law to add to your salvation, you put yourself under a curse because you have to keep the whole law then. And nobody can keep the whole law. There's, two, there's one type of person in the world, sinners. You know, we want to rate who's worse sinners than someone else, but the Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every man is in the same boat in that sense, in need of a Savior. Man is not in need of help. The Bible says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're in need of a new birth. What did you have to do with your first birth? Nothing. And Jesus told Nicodemus, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to be born of God. You need a Savior to come and save you. Listen to Proverbs 14.9. Fools mock at the guilt offering. So there, there's a certain type of people that says, oh, look at those Christians going to worship Jesus, their guilt offering. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger share, or no stranger shares its joy. Now listen to this. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Think about that. The house of the wicked, a big, strong house, it'll be destroyed. But the tent of the upright will be preserved. 
You see, it's counterintuitive to what we think. Certainly the tent isn't going to stand. But then the very next verse says this. But um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Natural man thinks he's doing the right thing. Natural man thinks he's going to be okay before God, but in the end it leads to destruction. You know, with their words, they build their house of their life and say, this will surely stand, this will surely stand, but it won't. But the man who says, nothing I build can stand before that God. I need him to make my little tent survive. That man will be preserved uh, to the end. And so as we come to chapter 4 now, he's coming right out of the context of what we went through two weeks ago. If you have your Bibles, look at Galatians 3.23. And we're just going to start reading here and then look at this text. Galatians 3.23. Paul said, now before faith came, what he means there is before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So God gave his law. The, The point never was, to give Israel the law to see if they'd be good enough. Rather, he gave Israel the law to show them that they needed to look to the promised Savior, that they could never keep it. And so the law enslaved people under it because because of the fact man couldn't keep it, judgment was waiting for man. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what he's saying there is if you've trusted in Christ, Jesus' baptism, which means his death, was your baptism, was your death to sin. Those who trusted in Christ are all one in Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek or a male or a female, you're all sons of Abraham. Remember, two weeks ago is Mother's Day. And the sermon you got, it, mothers, is if you're trusting in Christ, you're sons in the fact that you received the inheritance of the firstborn son if you're trusting in Christ. And so that's the theme that uh, we see coming into chapter 4 here. And, and here's what we get in this text. We get the illustration. So, like I said, this isn't anything new. It's another way to illustrate it. Because we forget, and so the Bible gives us letters like this to kind of screw these truths into our brain. 
And so we get the illustration in verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to see how we identify with this illustration. Then we're going to see the application. So here's the illustration Paul gives. Verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So the illustration is an illustration of a child becoming an adult in Paul's day. This was really clear in the Jewish faith. Have you ever heard of the bar mitzvah? Uh, it's the celebration uh, for Jews that when a son is 12 years old, the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday, they have the bar mitzvah celebration. And what this is, is this is a, a moment where the father basically gives up his authority over his son and says, God, he's yours. And the son says, God, I'm under your law. So there's a transfer from childhood to adulthood where now this is a child, now an adult, 12 years old, who's going to stand before God. It was a clear moment in in Jewish history. For the Gentiles, those in Galatia, if they were influenced by the Roman culture, uh, what they had is something similar. There, there was a certain toga. We've, you've all probably heard of toga parties where they wear, wear these white robes. Well, there's the toga of preparation that a child uh, would wear to this ceremony. Sometimes it was between somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. Uh, John MacArthur, if you're interested in looking into this, gives a lot of information uh, on, on these ceremonies. But there's a moment where he trades in his childhood toga for his adult toga. And, and the adult one is called libralia. It, it's his liberation. It's his freedom. It's a public ceremony. And these... Uh, at this ceremony, the child becoming an adult would bring all of his toys. If it was a girl, it would be, it would be a dolls and stuff like that. For boys, maybe it was trucks, whatever. He brings it and he burns it to the God of Apollo at this moment of, of becoming an adult. And so there was this clear distinction. There's a time when you're a child and there's a time when you become an adult. And in this illustration, he's saying this. A son that's going to inherit an estate might as well be a slave. And that's what his life looks like until the date set by his father when that son is going to inherit the estate. You see, one day, the child is a slave to a guardian. Uh, those who had more money had slaves who would basically be a guardian to the children, basically saying, don't do that, do this. You know, this is what you do with children, right? Don't do that. You need to do this. We just took our children into like a boutique store, uh, a fancy antique shop on a, when we were on our way back from Louisville. 
And we bring four little girls in. And I ran around for 40 minutes saying, don't touch that. Don't grab that. Well, this is what it's like when you're a guardian of children. You're running around and you're basically giving them law, it seems like. All these rules that they need to obey by. And his illustration then is that when you're a child, you're pretty much like a slave for all practical purposes until, and here's the key, the date set by his father. You might think a child is going to get the state when he performs, when he really, when he really shows himself faithful. At that point, God, uh, the father's going to say, all right, now you have it, son. But that's not the way it worked in Paul's day. There was a date set, and when that date came, that child was heir of the whole estate. And as you can see in point one there, I want you to consider what was the turning point from a child becoming to the point of maturity. It was the date set by the father. And so here we have our illustration, and he's going to show how we can relate to this in our relationship with Christ. Look at verse 3. Here's the identification. In the same way, so you can see how he's applying this illustration. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So there was a time, these Galatian Christians, Paul says, you were children, and he's not talking about age-wise, but he's talking about spiritually. You did just what the world does. You try to please God by your own works. God gave you a conscience. You know you're sinful, so you make up your own religion of how you think you're going to work it out. Now, the term elementary principles of the world has been debated by commentators. Uh, some people say it's just literally the elements of the world, whether it's water and, and fire and wind. And you had people worshiping those. And, and others say it's more like angels and demons. People would worship the spirits and, and make up other gods. Uh, MacArthur uh, believes it's kind of like the ABCs of religion, the natural man's way of making himself right before God. And what he's saying is, in the same way, when you were children, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to you're feeling guilty, so you make up a works righteousness religion. But the problem is, is you always fail. Even the, whatever religion you make up, you won't be consistent with it. But then, in verse 4, something happens. But when the fullness of time had come, 
That's a very important statement in the Bible. But when the fullness of time had come, God. So get this. You were children, and at, a, at the fullness of time, God did, did something. Here's the transition point in salvation. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, what I just read, those two verses, if you just took those in, the reality of them, and you understood it, you would be dancing where you are right now. Even if you're German. Let's look at this. Let's, let's think. This is our struggle to think through these precious truths. Let, you're going to see the Trinitarian work of God here. Look at the Father's work. When the fullness of time has come. Who sets that? God does. God did something at the perfect time in history. You know, we can ask God all the why questions we want. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why uh, was He raised in the Palestinian era at that time? Why, 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 why? We don't get answers to all those questions. We can guess, but here's what we know. God at the perfect time united everything to Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. Your life, your eternity hinges at a point in time in history 2,000 years ago that was the fullness of time. You might be saying, what, what, what worth is history in my life? Eternity. According to God's Word. In the fullness of time, Ephesians 1.9, Paul says it this way, making known to us the mystery of His will. You know, what's God doing in the world? What's His will? Seems like a mystery. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Every creature that's ever been made has been made for Christ. Every prophecy that was ever given was pointing to Christ. Everything about life eternal in heaven is going to point back to Christ. All things unite in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the fullness of time. When Jesus first started preaching, here's what He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. All right? Here's God on earth, took on human flesh, and He's starting to preach, and He says, the time is here. And He says, turn from your sins. And He doesn't say, turn from your sins and be good enough. Finally do it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But he says, turn from your sins to Christ, the gospel, your hope of salvation. 
And the way the gospel works is when you turn to Christ, your life starts to change. But it's not the change that earns your way into heaven. Paul says in Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law came, the flesh was weak, and all the law could do is say, You are in big trouble. You're condemned if you are saved according to law. But God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, He condemned... uh, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So Jesus came to become a man to die in your place for your sins. Look at the Father's sending work. It's amazing. And what does He send? He sends forth His Son, born of, the, born of a woman. What does born of a woman mean? It's not so much pointing to the virgin birth. That's true. The point is this. God sent the eternal Son to take on human flesh. Because if Jesus didn't take on human flesh, then He can't die for the sins of man. So He came born of a woman, born under the law. Here's a human being that has God's law before him, and he's the only person who lived a perfect life according to that law so that you can be judged according to his perfect life and not your sinful life. And you want to know what Jesus did? When he took your sin under that same law, he died. He paid the price for your sin and my sin. For what purpose? Why did God send Jesus? Every human being was enslaved under the law, but God sent forth His Son, took on human flesh, born under the law. Why? What does it say? What's the purpose for God sending? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you were a slave and you were standing in a line being sold and you're standing there and you're wondering, oh, I hope a good, hope I don't get a cruel master here. You know, I'm going to live my whole life. My life is according to whoever buys me. You might be hoping for a, a, a good master, but God looking at all man under sin, in sin and under the law, enslaved to sin, enslaved to condemnation, God in His love sends Jesus to redeem you. Now, if He's going to do that, He has to pay the price for you. Well, your price is an eternal price because your sin was against an eternal God. So what you need is you need an eternal price paid for you. And Jesus Christ is the only one who had the value to give His life to purchase you out of slavery 
And not just to purchase you out of slavery, but to do what? But to make you a son in his family. You see, he doesn't just buy you with his blood out of hell. He adopts you into his family. And then what does the text say? And if a son, then a heir. You see what I mean? This is unbelievable. Could it be true that your inheritance is the same inheritance of Jesus Christ? Could you really be his brother? In Christ, could you receive everything? All the riches and glory, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Could it be true that rebels and sinners could be made children in the family of God? Well, that's the gospel. And Paul is pleading with a group of brand new Christians that are tempted to put themselves back into slavery under the law. And he's pleading with them. Think of what this would mean. This would mean that God said, now's the time. My son is the person. His work is to die in sinner's place, to redeem them, to adopt them. And if the Galatians go back to the law, they're saying, God, you had the wrong time, you had the wrong man, and it didn't work. And he's saying, no. God's timing is perfect. God's purchasing is perfect. And his adopting is perfect. Why, now that you're the heir of everything, would you go back to childhood and put yourself under a guardian? Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, do this, do that. Jesus comes, He fulfills all that. That was all a shadow pointing to Jesus. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? Why would you not value your sonship. You know, every son of God is an adopted son of God. You know, in our culture, sadly, people will think of themselves, maybe you're adopted, maybe you've always thought of yourself as like a second-class family member. You ought not. You ought not. Every child of God is an adopted child of God. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile. Here's what Russell Moore says about this. As a father of five now, some by that of adoption, some by more the more typical way, I'm as convinced as ever that adoption into a family or into the family of God is real. There is no such thing in God's economy as an adopted child. Only a child who was adopted into a family. Adopted defines how you came into the household. It doesn't define you as some other sort of family member. In the book of Romans, Paul defines all Christians, both Jew and Gentiles, of having received a common spirit of adoption. You're not kind of in the family of God 
if, you, if you've been adopted by Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you are. Do you realize our God is different than every other God in every other religion? Every other God is not a family. Our God is Trinity. They might say, you know, if, if someone in Islam said, well, well uh, Allah is love. Well, how could he be? Until he created man, he couldn't be eternally love. The Christian God has always been Trinity. God has always been a father to a son and had the Holy Spirit. Our God has always been love. We're the only ones who can say that God is a family and that you get adopted into the Trinitarian family of God, not as a second-class citizen, but as heir of everything. It's amazing truth. Amazing truth. And look at verse 6. God in His kindness, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son... You see the Father sending, you see Jesus coming, taking on flesh, doing the work of salvation, and now you see the Father sending again, not the Son this time, but the Spirit of His Son. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His sons into our heart crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now let's think about this. Because you're a son, the second you trust in Christ, you're legally adopted by God. But how do you know you're in that family? God in His grace sends the Spirit of the Son inside you, crying out, Abba, Father. What does it mean to cry out, Abba, Father? That word cry out is actually really offensive. Uh, the leading lexicon says this, krazan uh, or krazo. You can almost hear like cry. Here's what it says of that word. <clears throat> to shout or to cry out with, with the possible implication of an unpleasant nature of, a, of the sound, to shout or to scream. You know, when you've heard this preach before, you might think, well, God spent the, sent the Spirit to us to go, oh, Daddy, you're my Daddy, you're my Papa Father. You know, that's kind of... But actually, this word has this offensive cry out. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this. In a fallen world, in the text that Scott read, Romans 8, you remember the Spirit was sent into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, so that we can know we're children of God if we suffer with Christ? You see, here's the thing. Living in a fallen world, we're, we're suffering. You might think, well, I'm not suffering that bad. Well, even when you don't know you're suffering, that's probably the height of your suffering. Because right now, you're in the orphanage, and you're awaiting the day when Christ returns. You see, it's even more sad when you don't realize you're suffering and your heart isn't crying out for Jesus. But here's what happens. In this fallen world, the true believer, let me first talk about non-believer. A non-believer, when things go wrong, when they get that phone call, 
You want to know what comes out of their mouth? Oh, God. What is going on? What are you doing? I thought you were God. God. Way out there, distant. God. But the Christian... In the moment of suffering, in the moment of crying out from the soul, when you're not thinking about your words, you want to know what comes out of your mouth? Oh, Father, Father, what's going on? That's what comes out of the mouth of a Christian. They sound the same. But what this text means is, you know God is your Father when in the deepest moment of suffering, what comes out of your mouth is, God is my dad. He's my father. I don't know what's going on maybe, but I know I'm in his family. So God doesn't, even, doesn't just give us adoption. He lets us know we are adopted by a personal relationship we have with him. You see, I've talked to both types of people who are talking to me about a God they believe in, but the God they're talking about is this distant deity. And others come. They want to talk about their father, why their father might be doing what he's doing. But you see the kindness of God? He not only sends Christ to do the work of your salvation, He sends the Spirit to let you know you're in a family. You're in my family. You're never going to be outside of my family. And Paul is saying to these people, saying, you really want to leave the inheritance of sons and go back to being slaves? How foolish would that be? So, man... Time's getting away here. Let's go to point three, application. Formally, when you did not know God, I think that the reason why we know that childhood was represented in the fact that it was before a person trusted by faith in God is because of verse eight. Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that that by nature are not gods. So the way you used to live before Christ, you were enslaved to whatever religion you built in your mind. Whatever God you fathomed in your mind. You know, everyone fathoms the type of religion where they're the ones just getting in. But he's saying that's what you used to do. You used to worship a different God before you knew God. But now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God. You can tell Paul's a Calvinist there. You see what he says? But now that you've come to know God, that's true, they have, but why did they come to know God? Rather to be known by God because God showed Himself to them. How can you turn back again to weak and worthless, to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I labored over you in vain. Here's the application. It's just the question. 
after realizing who you are in Christ, are you really going to go make yourself a slave to all that? You want to know what the Sabbath was for? To point towards your rest in Christ. The fullness of time had already come. It's already been fulfilled in Christ. So you're going to go back and do the Sabbath? The days and seasons and and, uh, circumcision, all that. Didn't you know that in Christ, your circumcision was a better circumcision than the circumcision made with hands? But it's a spiritual circumcision of the heart? not just of the skin that's pointing towards the spiritual reality? You see what he's saying? What's this have to do with you? Other than this might be interesting to you, how does it apply to your life? Essentially what Paul's saying is this. Remember who you are, Christian. Remember, you're a son. Why are you living according to the law? How do you and I live according to the law? Well, I've I've said this many times. It's one of the best ways. When you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling worried, go back and try to figure out what you're worried about. I guarantee you, you're not thinking of yourself in light of who you are in Christ. In Christ, you have everything. Your eternity is secure. You get the worst news in the world today, that can affect anything that's most important to you, which is eternal things. You go to the Bible, you find out God's perfectly wise. God's perfectly in control of time. God knows what He's doing. Even your hard times are working for your good to make you like Christ. In a matter of a moment, we can forget who we are And we can think life is about pleasing other people rather than realize that we never were good enough. We're 100% given Christ's identity. Well, if you live according to that, you won't ever be an insecure person. You'll be secure in who you are. Every day, moment by moment, we need to remember our inheritance. If you struggle with materialism, what are you forgetting? You're going to inherit the world. You're going to get everything. You're still in the orphanage. The papers are already done. You're already told that you're in the family of God. You're waiting for Christ to return. You're going to get it all. You don't need it now. It's so practical to how it affects our life, and yet we reach back for slavery. Let me end with this illustration from... Uh, another quote from Russell Moore. When he adopted his two sons uh, from a Russian orphanage, here's what he says. When my wife Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from the orphanage to family was more difficult than we had su- supposed. We dressed, the boys in the outf- we dressed the boys in the outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a road. I noticed that they were shaking 
and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now, Timothy, that place was a pit. If you only knew what's waiting for you, a home with mommy and daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals, you would not be reaching back for the slavery. And yet, those of us who are adopted into Christ naturally start to reach back to our slavery rather than to look forward to our inheritance seated with us right now at the right hand of God in Christ. So that's the challenge. The same challenge they had, we have today. 2017. If you're not careful, you'll live according to law and not according to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Father, I just pray that we would glory in the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray that none of us would find any hope in any religious thing we've ever done, whether it's going to church, whether it's being baptized, whether it's taking communion, whether it's getting confirmed, whether it's saying some prayer that was just a religious rite. Father, we believe your word. Help us believe your word that the only way we'll be saved is if we trust in Christ's work for us by faith. God, I pray that everyone would leave here today. Father, they all can know their sons if they would simply trust in the Son. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.